Our first panel today is titled Equal Work, Equal Pay, and the speakers will be considering each issues of gender equality in the formal, informal, and future economy. The moderator for this panel is Ms. Tan Sushan. Ms. Tan is a group head of institutional banking at DBS, and she also serves as a president commissioner for PT Bank DBS Indonesia. Ms. Tan, over to you. Morning, everyone. I'm delighted to be the moderator. I've got a power-packed um, women panel here. Um, but before we kick off, I just wanted to share a few factoids just to, to kind of, you know, set the scene for our discussion, which I have no doubt will be a very engaging one. Um, so, you know, in the last few decades, the share of women in the workplace, the number of women who participate in the workplace has definitely increased. Um, and what COVID showed us was that women and men can work both from the workplace or at home. And technology is a real leveler. Um, and you no longer, you know, in the past, we needed muscle and heft. Today, you need traits like empathy, creativity, knowledge of technology, etc. All which speaks good or speaks well for the future of women. Yet, last year, the Ministry of Manpower report detailed that the gender pay gap in Singapore was about 16.3%. It's better than 16% in 2002, but there is still that gap. And in the World Economic Forum 2021 Global Gender Gap Index, Singapore was ranked 54. For a country that's, you know, used to ranking one or two in a lot of things, I guess there is still work to be done for us. And this wage gap that we talk about, you know, equal work, equal pay, could it be a vicious cycle where if women start off with less bargaining power, they then have to, to shoulder all the work um, at home and at work and balance a lot more than men. Um, and with the low participation of women leadership in STEM, with the advent of AI, is that going to be a continuous vicious cycle for us? Um, and does more positive reinforcement and societal change, uh, 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 that, is there a lot more that work that's needed to, 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 to really just balance the equation? Um, so we've got a great uh, different prisms today from, from our three distinguished speakers. So Jessica Pan, who's going to kick us off, she's an associate professor uh, in the Department of Economics. And, you know, I think uh, Jessica will probably set the scene for giving us some of the macro policy, labor policies, lay of the land, data, etc. And then she'll be followed by Carrie Tan, who will bring us, uh, she carries the founder and strategic advisor of Daughters of Tomorrow, also a member of parliament of Jisun. So uh, a, a great focus that we can see on societal norms and, 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 and trends that we're seeing. And then we'll, we'll, we'll end up with Juliana Chan. And Juliana is the founder and CEO of Wild Type Media Group. Uh, and she will have a focus on STEM uh, and female uh, entrepreneurship, very, very timely, uh, especially in this, in this sort of time of great digital disruption. So let me just uh, introduce Jessica. So Jessica is an Associate Professor of Economics and the Dean's Chair of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at NUS. Um, and she's, doing, she's also a Research Fellow at the Institute of Labor Economics and the Center of Economic Policy Research. Um, so, and, and with a lot of uh, focus on understanding gender differences in the labor market and education outcomes. So, Jessica, over to you. Thank you very much, Shushan, um, for the uh, very kind introduction. And I'd, I'd also like to say a big thank you to the organizers for the hard work in putting together this very exciting conference. 
Um, today, um, my aim will be to kind of provide a very brief overview of what I think are some of the remaining pain points uh, uh, for the gender gap in the labor market, touching very briefly on what I believe are some of the main causes, consequences, and potential policy responses to some of these gaps. So as, um, as many of you are well aware, can I pull up my slides? Sorry. Yeah, perfect. Um, so next slide, please. So um, in terms of where we are now, as many of you are well aware, women have made remarkable progress in the labor market over the past half a century in many countries around the world. Uh, Singapore is no exception. On many dimensions, women are now more prepared for the labor market than ever before. Uh, we have observed a reversal of the gender gap in education, with women becoming increasingly more well-educated than their male peers. And again, this is also true in Singapore. Uh, women are also substantially delaying their childbirth and are, as such, acquiring a lot more job experience. And in line with their increasing investment in education and training, young women increasingly expect to work in their prime age years. Um, so this figure here uh, on the next slide shows the uh, reversal in the gender gap in university education in Singapore among the younger cohorts. So this is data from, um, uh, from DOS in 2018. And what, uh, the, the, the first thing that really sort of stands out from this picture is sort of the immense amount of educational upgrading that you observe over time across cohorts in Singapore. Um, so that, that's uh, inferred from the height of the bars uh, here, which essentially plot the share of each age group with a university, university degree in 2018 by gender. Uh, the other striking pattern in the figure is that if you look at the older cohorts, which are the last four bars in this uh, figure, uh, what you notice is that essentially men used to, you know, sort of complete university education at much higher rates than women. But this um, landscape has kind of changed immensely for the more recent cohorts, where among the youngest cohorts, you know, of students who now enter university or are graduating from university, essentially women are graduating at higher rates than men. So again, you know, this, this sort of uh, echoes this uh, observed um, gender rever reversal in the gender gap in education that we've observed uh, in Singapore as well as in uh, many, many countries, and it uh, shows no sign of letting up. Um, on, on the other hand, um, despite sort of all of this progress that women have made, we know that substantial gaps remain. Uh, Shushan gave us a, a, you know, a very broad review of some of the uh, remaining gaps that still exist. Uh, we observe that in some countries, um, there has actually been essentially slowing convergence or even plateauing of um, um, some of the convergence um, in labor market outcomes since the mid-1990s, particularly in the US and the UK. Even in countries with very high female labor force participation, like the Scandinavian countries, a very large share of these women continue to work part-time. Um, at the same time, significant gender gaps remain, even among full-time four-year workers, and even when women um, are represented in the labor market, they tend to be underrepresented in high status, high income occupations. And when they are represented in these fields, they also typically earn less than men. So in, with this audience, I think I don't really have to say much about why we should care about gender inequality. But I think sort of beyond concerns about fairness and rights, I think as an economist, I want to offer at least two reasons why this matters from sort of an economics point of view. The first is that I think if we believe that innate, innate talent is equally distributed between men and women, and I certainly believe that, it must be the case that superior economic outcomes would be achieved if women had the same odds as men to make it to the top of the earnings distribution. In other words, what this means is that the underrepresentation that we observe in top positions in the labor market essentially implies that we must be operating inside the efficiency frontier. In other words, there must be gains to be made 
if if you had sort of more equal representation at different points of the um, um, career career pathway. Um, Besides sort of macroeconomic gains and gains in economic growth, if you think about kind of some of the big problems that Singapore is facing right now with our rapidly aging workforce, essentially higher female labor force participation can also help us to boost, boost economic growth by mitigating the impact of a shrinking workforce. Uh, from, a firm side, from the firm point of view, many organizations are also making the case for um, business case for diversity and inclusion, again, with the basic idea that diversity and leadership roles um, might be productivity enhancing. Okay. So essentially, I think this sort of leads us with a question, you know, why are women struggling to close these gaps? I mean, clearly we've seen that they've made a lot of progress. So, so what's left? You know, uh, what are the drivers of some of these uh, re remaining gaps? So I think a lot of recent research, um, especially in academia, has really kind of zoned in on, you know, the, has zoned in and focused on the role of uh, children and their importance in understanding the remaining gender disparities, particularly in developed countries. And, you know, many of the proposed explanations for these remaining gaps are, are really sort of centered around how children continue to impose differential demands on uh, women's time relative to men's. And much of this um, is motivated by the view by the striking observation that really, when you look at, um, next slide please, when you look at the career trajectories of men and women with the arrival of children, you see something um, that happens very, very suddenly and discreetly with the arrival of children. So what these figures show for a, a variety of countries um, is that essentially in the years prior to the birth of the first child, so on the left of the, uh, of, of the vertical red line, essentially men and women's careers are sort of progressing in very similar ways. A huge uh, change happens uh, when, when the child is born. And essentially, I think what is the more striking fact from this figure is the fact that these gaps really don't um, close even 10 years after the birth of the first child. Um, essentially, um, these patterns are very robust. They are seen across a wide range of countries, although the exact magnitude of these gaps uh, could vary potentially for reasons to do with family policy or gender norms. Next slide, please which kind of leaves us with this puzzle, right? Which is, you know, why is it despite the fact that the economic roles of men and women are converging, women are still expected to be the main providers of childcare within the household. And here, I think I'll outline sort of three potential reasons. The first is sort of something that I think we all kind of know and our research has been sort of catching up to trying to document this, which is this uh, idea that gender identity norms and gender role attitudes are important. And the other two factors I, I think are sort of more, you know, countervailing factors, which seem to have become increasingly important. They make it even more difficult for men and women to balance um, career and family. So next slide, please. So I think by and large, work uh, family issues typically remain largely a women's problem because of persistent gender norms. On the one hand, if you look at the data, gender role attitudes appear weaker today than in the past. On the other hand, it seems like there are certain attitudes that are taking just very, you know, a very long time to converge. And these are attitudes, you know, sort of regarding women as homemakers, as well as conflicts between mothers and the well-being of their children. And at the same time, there could be other gender identity norms that really only start biting when women's position in the labor market improves. And this could be things like, you know, men should earn more than their wives, men should be breadwinners, so on and so forth. Um, next slide, please. So coming back to the child penalty I showed you before, researchers have shown a, a robust correlation between the size of these child penalties and the um, you know, progressiveness of gender norms in a country. So countries that appear to be more conservative are also countries that appear to have larger child penalties. Okay. 
Next slide, please. Now, turning to the two countervailing forces that I mentioned, um, you would have thought that, you know, in a sense, in today's society, especially among um, the more educated people, you, you would have thought that time-saving technologies and outsourcing options should, in principle, reduce the need to double shift, especially among these workers. On the other hand, I think uh, something that we have observed is basically sort of a growing emphasis on parental time spent with children. And so this sort of acts as a countervailing force where, you know, it seems like the home is also a, a, an area that's demanding even more of parents' time and in particular mother's time. Now, we don't exactly know the reasons for this, and it could be in part due to a culture of intensive parenting fueled by, you know, expert advice in the media, could be because of rising inequality and competition, or perhaps a shift towards more gender roles as women gain progress in the labor market. But it, it definitely seems to be the case that, you know, compared to many years ago, um, the home is also demanding more. Next slide, please. Now, turning to the work side of things, it seems like things are not altogether rosy there as well. Um, recent research has also documented that work is appearing to become more greedy in the sense that the returns to working long hours and inflexible hours has also been increasing over time. What this means for women is that essentially because women tend to put a higher premium on uh, workplace flexibility and uh, shorter hours, this essentially means that the gender pay gaps tend to be largest in occupations with higher returns to working long hours. And if you think about this from a family's point of view, it sort of penalizes equity within couples as well, right? It increases specialization because if, uh, if it's such that you can only reap enormous rewards at work, if you put in the time, it makes a lot of sense for one partner to slow down so that another partner can basically reap fuller commitment from, 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 uh, from uh, can reap the rewards from fuller work commitment. Next slide, please. So um, in my remaining sort of minute or so, and again, we can you know, come back to this during our Q&A, I'm just gonna talk uh, super briefly about some of the potential policy responses to some of these remaining pain points. Um, the first is that you know, uh, a very attractive thing that many sort of governments and HR policies will try to do is um, essentially to try to you know, augment work family amenities. And these are you know, amenities such as parental leave, part-time work, flexible work arrangements, and on the one hand, the idea of doing this is really to kind of try to attract and retain women in, um, in their careers in the labor market. But on the other hand, I think, you know, if you sort of really think about what these policies do to the extent that they are only sort of taken up by women or, you know, sort of you know, um, tend to be something that women are sort of uh, more likely to take up, there is a chance that um, these policies could actually potentially backfire in the sense that, um, for example, longer parental leave might raise the cost to employers for hiring women. For example, employers might react to these policies by you know, avoiding assigning women to important jobs or clients, or part-time entitlements themselves may encourage women to take up part-time um, jobs instead of full-time jobs. So in sort of economic speak, um, the idea would be that, you know, to the extent that employers find flexibility costly and only one group tends to take it up, it's kind of unlikely that these policies alone would make a very tangible impact on the gender pay gap, right? Because these are things that are costly from an employer's perspective to implement. Um, there are also a, a, a other slate of work family amenities, such as outsourcing childcare, um, that, um, that, 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 that could also offer some promise in trying to allow women to combine family and work. These include things like subsidized childcare, offering high quality childcare um, uh, you know, by, by the government or firms, on the other hand, we also have market substitutes such as you know, nannies and foreign domestic helpers that, could, um, that, that, that people can purchase in the market. 
And I think uh, research has shown that, you know, these policies do indeed help women to um, advance their careers. But on the other hand, we know for a fact that, um, you know, today's parents want to spend more time with their kids. And so if the aim is really to contract all, out all aspects of childcare, then a natural question would be, then why do we bother having kids? So in that sense, I think, you know, there, there are some limited gains to these supply side policies, right? I mean, on the one hand, at, at some point you can say, okay, why don't you just take away all child, child caring responsibilities? Then, you know, um, that doesn't seem to be the solution either. So um, next slide, please. So I think sort of a, 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 another sort of promising policy option that um, ha has become increasingly common, especially in the European countries, has been um, paternity leave provisions. And I think this is something where, you know, we can seriously think about and, um, and the, the kinds of paternity leave provisions that um, many European countries have, have, have um, uh, encouraged is sort of um, uh, parental leave policies that are reserved for the exclusive use of fathers in a sort of a use it or lose it manner. And I think early evaluation of the policies do suggest that these policies do encourage fathers to take up the dedicated quota, but so far at least not more than that. Um, there appears to be some persistent effects on fathers' involvement in childcare and division of labor. Um, on the other hand, the effects on women's labor market outcomes, at least as of now, appears to be fairly muted, except for a recent study in Spain that seems to suggest pretty large effects. But again, you know, these policies have only very recently been put in place, so it's hard to tell. But I think these policies have a lot of potential because they really potentially address the core of what is holding women back, right? By fundamentally addressing, um, uh, by hopefully weakening the traditional division of labor and helping to speed up the shift in gender norms. Now, next slide, please. Now, turning to the uh, work side of things, I think another promising policy would be to sort of think about job reorganization and redesign, right? So uh, in some sense, the fact that we observe large differences in flexibility, flexibility penalties across occupations suggests that this could be a matter of job redesign. Now, on the one hand, if, if um, these differences across jobs are really due to unalterable differences in the nature of work, then there's really very little that policy can, can do. But on the other hand, if work can be reorganized with little or no productivity costs, then there could be some scope for addressing gender gaps directly by addressing the sources of these flexibility penalties. So for example, we could try to find ways to make employees more substitutable to clients. Um, the, uh, governments could try to play a role to try to ease coordination among competing for firms so that they can, um, they can make some of these changes. And perhaps uh, one way to try to sort of accelerate this process might be to try to push more women to top organizational uh, layers in order to accelerate job redesign. And I think as mentioned by, um, uh, 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 by President Halima earlier, I think, you know, with COVID-19, there, there appears to be some widespread uh, speculation that this could lead to a fundamental shift in the organization of work. Next slide, please. We know that women have a higher willingness to play for, for remote, remote work and hours flexibility. And COVID-19 has very much sort of, you know, um, been seen as a large scale shock to the adoption of remote and flexible work. So I think, you know, on the one hand, we do expect persistence and we do think that women could benefit from this added flexibility on their jobs. So I think a policy question that sort of remains is sort of how best to support firms and businesses in order to uh, ensure equal access and sustain changes in workplace flexibility. So my time is up, but just to very quickly wrap up, I think uh, work-family trade-offs are a first-order explanation for the continued gender gaps in the labor market. We need to look beyond supply-side policies and encouraging women to lean in. Um, I think job redesign and policies that accelerate the, uh, weak, um, the weakening of traditional norms are needed to fully close the gaps. And I think sort of from a, from a 
fundamental pitching point of view, I think it's a, a very important to encourage what I call inclusive policy making. Women and men would benefit from the choice to pursue career and family aspirations, not just women. And so we need to shift the policy narrative away from work family trade-offs as being a women's issue, really to that of a family issue, and to really emphasize that both groups can really, you know, sort of gain from um, from 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 being able to to uh, do what what's best for 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 themselves and their families. All right, thank you. Thanks, Jessica. What an impactful start to today's uh, panel. I, I, I really had a lot of takeaways from you uh, in terms of the future of work, proactive labour policy, and the fact that even up to 10 years after the birth of the first child, you're still going to have this gap. But I'm optimistic with, with what you ended in terms of what can be done uh, and technology is that great leveller. Just to, to share an interesting factoid, you know, we used to talk about mummy guilt a lot. I've started to hear young men talk about daddy guilt now. So that's a good change in societal norms. Um, and hopefully we can also, you know, we, we, people say, oh, tiger moms, because the moms are always the ones that are in charge of PSLE and, and, and schooling. <laughs> Maybe we can start hearing the term tiger dads soon. So moving on to Carrie. Carrie's the founder and a strategic advisor of Daughters of Tomorrow. Um, this is a charity with IPC status, and, and there's a lot of societal insights that I'm looking forward to hearing from Carrie, uh, particularly about the low-income women, the skills training gap, the job bridging support. Uh, and Carrie, obviously, as a member of parliament for Nisun, you will actively engage in various government agencies. Um, so over to you. All right. Um, thank you, Sushant, and uh, very good morning to all my distinguished guests and the organize, uh, organizers for today's conference. I'd like to thank you for the opportunity to share my perspective on this topic, equal work, equal pay. And uh, Jessica has done a great job of helping us to understand the barriers that most women face in accessing equal opportunities in the workforce. Um, but what I hope to do is to broaden and deepen uh, this discussion by sharing uh, my experience in Daughters of Tomorrow, which is an organization that's been working with low-income women the past seven years uh, with the mission to enable the social mobility of financially challenged families. And these are families um, that yeah, are in, currently in the bottom 15% uh, social economic class in Singapore. Um, can I put up my slides, please? Thank you. Okay, so we have found through the work at DOT that not all women are treated equally in the workforce. It sounds like a, a stating the obvious, um, but we must first uh, recognize that there are subgroups of women who face very complex and very distinct challenges and needs. And at the heart of it all is actually the intersection of poverty, gender, class, and race. So understanding these factors on the different factors on their own and how they actually interact to worsen the strain in the lives of lower-income women is critically important to help policymakers sharpen our understanding and also hopefully to create better solutions. So in this slide that you're seeing now is some basic information about the profile of the low-income women in Singapore. So it's very clear who I'm sharing about and about this community. So you can see that 70% of these women are young. They're between the ages of 21 and 40, prime working age. 70% of them have less than an ITE education, and more than half of them did not complete secondary school. Slightly more than half are single mothers, and of whom another half of them have children below 10 years old, and this has uh, many implications on the barriers to work. Next, you'll see that, um, the next slide, please. 
you see that uh, Singapore citizens make up the vast majority of low-income women. Uh, and it's notable that 77% of them, at least in DOTS database, are from racial minority groups in Singapore. And now that you have a better idea of who they are, let's try to understand the struggles that they face in finding employment. Next slide, please. From here, we can see that childcare issues are the most common barrier to employment and gendered notions of who should look after children and who should go out to work force many low-income women to stay at home. Um, this is what uh, Jessica has alluded to earlier. Um, this is despite the fact that in many of these households, the mother could actually have a better job and wage prospects than the father. And I'll come back to this later with the story. Some women managed to overcome this gender barrier, uh, gender notion barrier, but they quickly encountered a second one, which is late penalty fees at childcare centers. Because even with subsidized childcare, a few dollars a month, many of these women are subject to high penalty fees if they show up late to pick up the kids. And the late, fee, uh, the late fees for one day can easily wipe out the majority of what they earn for that day. We know that women who are well-educated, highly sought after for their skills, and those who can afford to outsource caregiving already struggle for equality at the workplace due to the motherhood penalty that Jessica spoke about. So can we begin to imagine how worse it is for those who have less education, have much lesser means to manage the caregiving? And these women do not have the same bargaining power as middle and upper-class women in PMET jobs. So the difficulties that they face just to hold down a job are actually very harsh and overwhelming. Next slide, please. In adult beneficiary, uh, Lisa's words, it's not easy to get even a part-time job and not easy to tell bosses that you have a child you have to care for at home. They will just say, either you want to work or you don't want to work. And the result is that many of these women fall into casual jobs or part-time jobs. And in these jobs, not showing up at work that day means no pay that day. And in Mandarin, we call it shouting, coating. Literally, if your hands stop, your mouth stops too. So often with children falling sick and the caregiving needs of others in the family, these women will end up spending very few days at work that actually yield any significant income on a week-to-week -week basis. Next slide, please. Okay, let's take some time to digest uh, the information on this slide about the types of work that they fall into. Okay, um, all right, next. Uh, next, please. Adding to all the earlier mentioned difficulties is also the dimension of race. Racial minorities in Singapore make up only 25% of the overall population, but like I said earlier, 77% uh, of the low-income population. So there's a huge uh, mismatch here, misalignment in terms of the proportion. And I think the, the narrative that certain cultural deficiencies are the reason why minority race communities are low-income has to be retired. Um, in fact, I personally find that narrative uh, inherently pretty racist in itself. Uh, we now have better data and better studies to help us understand some of the real barriers that persons from racial minorities face. In fact, uh, IPS uh, did a very helpful study on race relations in 2016, which you see here. And it shows that there are racial pre preferences that each race holds when deciding who to hire. And although each racial group has its own biases against other minorities, it's very important to note that there is no instance in which the majority are discriminated against. And yet, ethnic minorities are not protected well enough in the labor market from discrimination unless the person who's hiring them is of the same race as them. 
And precisely because being Chinese, we are the majority race in Singapore. The biases and prejudices, many unconscious and unintentional ones, have a much bigger impact on the job opportunities that ethnic minorities have access to than vice versa. And to put it simply, when a low-income woman from an ethnic minority walks into a job interview, she is quite likely, very likely, to have a hiring manager who is Chinese and who possibly holds unintended prejudicial views about her based on her race. She then has to disprove and deal with any of these assumptions all before beginning to prove that she's a qualified and reliable worker. On the other hand, a Chinese applicant, even if her interviewer is of a different background, she would only have to prove that she's a good worker and not have to deal with any racist assumptions that the interviewer may have. And so this is something really important for those of us uh, in the majority groups anywhere to really understand. A very common and very often poorly justified requirement found in many job advertisements today is that applicants must speak Mandarin. Uh, this presents a barrier to entry for a minority race applicant who don't even get the chance to disprove any assumptions held by potential employers. So um, next slide. So all these factors combined, um, childcare difficulties, lack of stable income from commonly available jobs, workplace or hiring indignities force low-income women to consider self-employment and casual labor. So what they tend to is they take up deep jobs, they freelance as beauticians, they start home-based food businesses, and this is in a bid to gain more control over their time and to regain the dignity. Self-employment for these women is basically a means of avoiding penalties from work, given the lack of power that they have in, in the formal employment environments. And low-income women, they face harsh financial penalties, such as increased transport costs. Imagine if they have to deal with minor daily emergencies at home to do with children and care. They end up having to take a cab to work to show up on time, which is a financial penalty, or they get penalized for not showing up on time, as their pay will be docked, or if they pick up their kids late from childcare, there's a late fee. So either way, you're on time or not on time, you are penalized. There are also the psychological penalties from having to deal with the stigma and judgment that they face in the workplace, like I mentioned earlier. This judgment can range from people judging them for leaving their young children at home alone, or the fact that they require flexibility to tend to domestic emergencies, or even unfair expectations based on their race and single parenthood. And hence, self-employment gives these women a sense of self-reliance and dignity. At the very least, they don't have to subject themselves to these judgments. However, they don't make enough to contribute CPF or MediSafe to themselves, and they don't have access to leave benefits, medical benefits, hospitalization benefits, any of this that formal employment might give them. So although the majority of low-income women understand the importance of CPF and would like to contribute to their retirement based on a study that DOT recently conducted with the women, the fact is that the pressing and immediate needs of their day-to-day -day lives make it extremely difficult for them to do so. Uh, next slide, please. And based on a survey of 37 home-based business owners done by a local nonprofit called Horize Above, the average sales per month from a woman selling and making, making and selling cookies and quickways or beauty products, etc., ranged from $300 to $600 a month. And if we assume that only 30% of that is profit, we're actually looking at women who make net trade incomes of less than 
$2,400 a year. And this group of women in the in informal economy are very invisible. They fall through the cracks of government support schemes, very well-meaning, such as work Workfare Income Supplement, WIS. But WIS requires that a self-employed person first contribute to their Medisafe account before they can qualify for the Workfare payments. And the fact is that these women don't have enough money in the first place to contribute to, to Medisafe or CPF. So when formal employment comes with so many penalties and informal uh, employment doesn't pay well enough, what's the solution? Uh, I'd like to share about a story before uh, sharing the recommendations about how strict and unforgiving gender roles are in preventing women from working. So in 2013, I met Madam Arnie, now not her real name. She's a mother of four. She used to work in an office as an administrator and she has an O-level cert and she could have fetched a salary of around $2,500 a month. Her husband was less well-educated and worked as a bellhop in a hotel making less than $2,000 a month. And it was very clear that if they had to choose someone to go to work, Madam Arnie would be the one to go to work because she was able to access higher pay. But the traditional notion of the men being the breadwinner prevailed, and then Madam Arnie stayed home. And seven years on, this mindset still holds true for many families, and we continue to see that actually single mothers make faster and better progress to re-enter the workforce than married women do. So what these points do is that traditional masculinity defines men as the breadwinner with very damaging effects on families who can benefit from a more optimal and ungendered division of labor. Since becoming MP, I've also had many men reach out to me seeking support. Um, they are also full-time caregivers to their aged parents and I have to say that these men too deserve our attention and support. Fundamentally, we need to deconstruct and reconstruct our understanding, society's understanding of what makes a worthy man. And at the government and policy level, we actually can do much more to signal the need to shift this mindset with proactive and daring efforts to ungender the roles of caregiver and breadwinner. Uh, next slide. I urge policymakers uh, to look into implementing carefare as a parallel scheme to workfare for those who undertake caregiving work at home, forced by circumstances of lesser means. And the fact is that the main work that these individuals do is care, while their casual work or home-based businesses really serve as a pittance supplement to make ends meet. With carefare, low-income persons, women or men, whose circumstances force them to be full-time caregivers would be recognized by a basic income, while the self-employment or gig work helps to supplement that to help them reach a decent quality of life. Earlier, Jessica talked about paternity leave, and I believe also an echo the need to increase paternity leave in time to match paternity leave to send a strong signal that child rearing is an ungendered role that both fathers and mothers can play. Uh, it's not an easy policy to implement and not, not, not in Singapore overnight, but I think we need to and we can work towards equalizing childbirth leave in phases so that the various cultures in our society can catch up to these challenges and these changes. And finally, we need to unpack and combat toxic masculinity and mainstream and normalize men as being more than just breadwinners. Toxic notions of manhood are often the cause of men acting out abusive manners, especially when faced with external stresses. And we see that during the circuit breaker when uh, we see this rise in domestic violence um, coming at the same time that you imagine the unemployment increased. 
In 2018, we see that seven out of 10 suicides were by men. And these statistics and also my personal observations uh, point to the fact that men do not know how to cope when they lose their jobs. And what it means is that they lose a sense of identity as a provider to their families. And Corina Lim in her latest uh, SR Madden Fellowship Lecture spoke on the same topic. I encourage everyone uh, to check it out. Um, I'd like to share a video here uh, of Rosie, a dot beneficiary, to put a face to what I've been sharing so far um, so that you can see these things that I just said play out uh, in real life to a woman and to many, many women like her. Uh, it's also a shameless talk for Dollars of Tomorrow and what they do at the community level. So please bear with me. Can we have the video? Uh, just for a bit of time. Thank you. My name is Rosilla. I'm 36 years old, a single parent of two daughters, age 14 and 11. I got married at a young age, so I don't really um, know what I was in for. As a young couple, we do not have stable income or the responsibility of being a parent. So we ended up having heated argument and then yeah, he was abusive, which led to a divorce. I was not having a stable job and then I went into depression, so um, I lost my self-confidence and uh, not being able to go out to work actually ends up with having debts. The hardest part of the experience was being a mother and also trying to keep myself sane, putting food on the table and to actually get back on my two feet. But when you know, the night comes and then I'll end up in the room crying and then worrying about uh, what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen to the children and if I'll be able to raise them well. Actually, if you talk about being a single parent, it is the struggle of getting financial assistance, walking into an SSO office, having to provide all the documents to get your financial assistance approved, and so the stigma that the society has on you. Like, why you have to leave the children at home at a young age? Why your marriage fail? Maybe she's not a good wife? That's why the husband left. She had a very different vision of what uh, kind of charity my name is Zubi Ali and I work at Daughters of Tomorrow. I'm in the women's development team where we help women to develop emotionally, uh, socially as well as uh, mentally to prepare them for the journey to go back to work. Uh, Daughters of Tomorrow's work is filling in a gap to supplement other social service organisations who are already doing good work but perhaps do not have the time or the service delivery to actually look into the women's issues in a very specific way. When we first met Rosila, she was very stressed, a little bit confused about what choices are available out there. Why do you work? Why do I work? So throughout the period of time when I attended the Confidence Curriculum class, we actually thought about grooming ourselves, how to attend interview, how to answer certain questions, like, um, and then to also explore our strength. What Daughters of Tomorrow is doing is very important for women like me who have been out of job for quite some time. Because we are, we are too used to being a housewife. So um, we lost our self-confidence yeah, and we feel that uh, we cannot go back and you know, interact with the outside world anymore. So the need to actually empower women, to let them know that 
they can actually go out and inspire other women. My job now as a welfare officer is kind of like a house parent. Working with children is something that I have always have a passion for. So um, as a young girl, it started as uh, having the ambition to become a teacher. Technically now, not as a qualified and certified teacher, but uh, in a way, I'm still a teacher to the kids. Seeing Rosila being able to contribute her time and experiences is the best uh, reward for us and makes us want to continue the work even more. Okay, um, to end, I would like to emphasize the key point is that despite the progress that Singaporean women have made in the past decades where education and jobs are concerned, not all women are treated equal. And while most women today are advocating for equal work and equal pay, let's not forget that there is still a group of women in Singapore who aren't even there yet and who need tremendous support just to access stable work and decent pay. Thank you. Thank you, Carrie. That really brought it home. Um, and I think we're all uh, very touched by what we heard and saw. Uh, I was particularly struck by how low, um, you know, the self-employment income that you had mentioned was, uh, which brings us and, and the whole low income trap and, and, and the racial minorities and the biases that they, they suffer. And um, I guess um, on the low income trap, that brings us very nicely to our next speaker, because thinking about how technology can be such an enabler, how social selling and social media could really help these small businesses scale up in a way that has never been done before. Uh, so let me introduce Juliana Chan. Uh, she's the founder and CEO of Wild Tide Media Group. Um, this is a leading stand focused media company. You've got digital, print, video, uh, customized uh, publishing, et cetera. Um, but more importantly, you know, she's been a real advocate for, for women leadership in STEM. Um, and, and, and also, I, I believe, you know, uh, a, a proponent of AI, but making sure that AI also does not uh, get trapped into our existing gender biases. Am I correct? So, Juliana, over to you. Thank you very much, Sushan. So, good morning, everyone. Good morning, Singapore President, Madam Halima Yaakob, Minister for Home Affairs and Law, K. Shamugam, Mr. Janadas Devan, Director of the Institute of Policy Studies, organizers, distinguished guests and speakers. Thank you very much for inviting me to speak at the inaugural Women's Conference on this topic of equal work, equal pay. So I think this is a very important topic for women everywhere. And I had a great time listening to Carrie and Jessica share with us their thoughts. So my name is Juliana and I am a science communicator and also an accidental entrepreneur. I'll tell you why that is the case later. Because for many years, I was a Nanyang assistant professor at NTU's Lee Kong Chien School of Medicine. But in 2018, about three years ago, exactly, I left academia and founded Wild Type Media, which is Asia's now leading STEM media company to give a voice to scientists in Asia. You know, why do I do so? Despite the significant contributions of Asian scientists to science, especially, by the way, in this COVID pandemic, most people think of scientists, they think of someone who is perhaps white and male. So my work, in addition to being the mother of two children, 
of one of whom one is a primary school going girl makes me naturally concerned about what this future economy will look like and also what will be women's role in it so today therefore my speech will be about the future economy and how women in stem can play a part in that in a very active way so in singapore the government policy and discourse about the future economy has one underlying assumption that stem which is science technology engineering and mathematics and ICT which is you know information communications technology will be key pillars of this economy so therefore in december 2020 the singapore uh, national research foundation announced its five years rie 2025 plan this is our budget for five years for r&d to be 25 billion dollars that's significant it is 1% of our gdp to strengthen our core capabilities in key r&d areas so clearly we recognize that r&d is an engine of growth and prosperity so to create this sustainable and productive future economy we really do need women to play an equal role in shaping this future because you know we cannot succeed on just 50% of this population we also need to develop and unleash women's talents and perspectives to make this future economy successful so i'm just going to take you to a little bit of data which i think is important to to frame the context of what we are dealing with according to singapore's ministry of education the percentage of women in stem degrees this is undergraduate degrees increased from 38% in 2017 to 41% in 2019 so 38% 2017 41% 2019 so that's pretty good because we are trending towards 50% i don't have newer data but only about 30% of the local researchers and engineers of our country's 35000 plus strong r&d workforce were women this is according to the astar national survey of r&d manpower in 2018 so if you just take a look at university degrees i didn't mention postgraduate degrees and you look at the workforce which is about 30% there is quite a large drop off from university degrees to the workforce in what we like to call the leaky pipeline of science and you know as you go further along their career track women start to disappear and when you go to the very top echelons of science they are virtually non existent okay the gap is of course wider in some fields in singapore women make up only 9 to 29% of professionals in cloud computing engineering and ai artificial intelligence so let us talk about some technical implications of this gender gap of course we talk about fairness and equality but let's talk about real implications okay gender imbalances in stem education and the workforce perpetuate gender biases so in just take a look at us and european automobile crash tests they do not require the use of pregnant crash test dummies even when 82% of us fetal deaths with known causes result from motor car collisions it's just not a priority okay until the last few decades medical science failed to realize that heart disease in women presents very differently than in men leading to underdiagnosis 
and misdiagnosis. Okay. Uh, let's talk about AI. Gender biases in AI and machine learning algorithms can have true and unintended societal implications. For example, who gets approved for a credit card and a credit score? Or in hiring processes when algorithms are now picking CVs you know, automatically and deciding who gets to be furthered to an in-person interview or a Zoom interview. So let's go back a little bit further into the past. It turns out that gender biases start very, very, very early in life. So I, in 2011, I started a blog called Asian Scientist Magazine. I was a scientist and I like to write about science news in the region. But now, besides covering news, we also initiate CSR efforts like the Asian Scientist-led Tech of the Year. This is because we want to recognize the unsung heroes in research, the technicians, who, by the way, are vastly female. So this year, I wanted to understand the origins of gender biases in STEM, and therefore, in line with the International Day of Women and Girls in Science, which takes place on February 11 every year, my magazine, Asian Scientists, in collaboration with international market research firm, YouGov, we surveyed about 1,000 respondents in Singapore, waited to give a representative population. And we learned that for Singapore-based parents with children under the age of 18, that they do think that science and tech is a popular career choice for their offspring. And, and the reassuring thing is, most parents believe that science and technology are equally suited for girls and boys. However, if you take a closer look at the data, you will see that 30% of respondents think that design and technology was more suitable for boys compared to 3% for girls. This is a log scale, by the way. This is similar for advanced mathematics. Advanced mathematics is, of course, a precursor to statistics, to finance, to AI, encoding, etc. In contrast, let's look at other subjects. 27% of respondents thought that literature, literature is more suitable for girls compared to 2% for boys, 27% versus 2%. This was similar for art. So design technology and advanced mathematics versus literature and art. So the stereotyping of women with the soft sciences and humanity and men with what we call the hard sciences and and, and technology is a pervasive stereotype that goes even beyond Singapore's borders. And these gender-based assumptions can become magnified and transmitted as these children choose what subjects to study in college and what careers to pursue later on in life. So how do we harness women's talents and potential very fully for this future economy? So I have four suggestions to keep my contribution practical for the key opinion leaders tuning in. So number one, we need strong female role models by increasing the media visibility of women scientists. So strong female role models. From a young age, parents can already help by exposing their children to female role models uh, so that the kids can see people who look like them in traditionally male-dominated industries. But boys, by the way, can also benefit from seeing women succeed as scientists, engineers, and astronauts. Now, 
in industry and academia, of course, we have to do away with what I, I call manals or male-only panels. This situation, by the way, is particularly bad in Singapore because many organizers don't see a problem with a completely male panel. The most egregious case I've seen in Singapore was a panel with seven speakers, all male, and a male moderator. So that's eight men on a panel. Even in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, there was at least one female character, Snow White. So therefore, I would like to encourage all my male professional colleagues to invite their female colleagues to join them on the panels, virtual or in person. It's really important that younger generations see women as a source of expertise and experience. Okay, that's number one. Number two, we need new policies that incentivize gender equality in hiring and promotion. To what extent are our higher education and research institutions implementing such policies? Um, the UK Higher Education Body Equality Challenge Unit had set up what we call the Athena Swan Charter to help higher education institutions measure gender equality and implement good practice. So for myself, I would like to share an anecdote and I would like to give credit where credit is due. See, when I was a teenager, and that was about 20 years ago, there was simply no culture of women getting PhD degrees or, or for that matter, master's degrees. This was about the, the, the noughties, uh, 2000, 2002. In 2002, then ASTA chairman, Philip Yeo, had the foresight to launch a scholarship that will allow Singaporean students, in particular girls like me, to study towards a graduate degree overseas or in Singapore. His aim was to reach a 50% male and 50% female ratio for the scholarship. So I applied and I was among the first batch of students to receive what we call the National Science Scholarship. So in my opinion, sometimes you just need someone to be willing to say, hey, the status quo ain't working for us. Let's fix it. So thank you, Chairman Philip Yeo, for being what I call a he for she. We need more he for she's among us. Third, we need to train our leaders to manage an inclusive and diverse workforce. Because you can have all the role models you, want, you need, you can have all the policies in place, but if our leaders do not understand how to manage a diverse and inclusive workforce, we are no better off than where we started. So in many countries, there is now a practice of creating what we call diversity and inclusion policies. I shall call it DNI within the senior management team, such as what we call a chief diversity officer or CDO. Some even hire external DNI consultants to help sort out gender and racial imbalances in their organization. I know actually people who are DNI consultants, and they do a very good job. And there are even recruitment firms that specialize in hiring for diversity. So, and of course, when you bring these people into your organization, you also need a plan to mentor them as they move up the career, uh, career ladder. Now let's talk about entrepreneurship. In 2020, only 4.9% of venture capitalist partners, VC partners in the US were female. And I'm not even discussing founding VC partners, that is even lower. So a report from HSBC Private Banking in 2019 found that two in five 
female entrepreneurs in Singapore have experienced gender bias when raising capital, while 59% have been denied funding compared to the 50% global average. So, you know, people may say, well, maybe they aren't as good entrepreneurs as men, you know, deal with it. Well, not quite, because an unequal access to VC funding is a bigger problem for society because women start different kinds of businesses. Women are more likely to start businesses that have a social purpose, supporting maternal health, children, families, and disadvantaged groups. So put two and two together, and you have a serious shortfall in capital going to important issues that could have been addressed. And my last point, which is the fourth point, that the factor probably holding women back the most is, as my previous speakers, Carrie and Jessica, have alluded to, is the unpaid care and emotional labour borne by women at home, sometimes referred to as the motherhood penalty or childcare penalty. So I'm just going to give you a science, uh, scientific study because that's what I, uh, that's my predisposition. Early journal submission data suggests that in COVID-19, um, it is tanking women's research productivity. In a 2020 paper, they estimated that the proportion of COVID-19 medical papers with a woman first author was 19% lower than for papers published by the same journals in 2019, in the same time bracket. This is consistent with the idea that research productivity of women, especially earlier career women, early career women, has been affected more than that of men. Such data brings up the fairness issue linked to remote work and school closures, findings that companies everywhere should take into consideration when evaluating the productivity of their female workforce during the pandemic. So I've got one question. I'm curious in this pandemic, if women are keeping up with the changing economy, are women using their $500 skills future credits as frequently as men? I don't have the answer. And if anyone from skills future is tuning in, please let me know. I'm curious because if women for a variety of reasons, such as you know, work at home, they will miss out on personal and professional growth, which could lead to career and wage stagnation. Last but not least, we need men to step up and take on their share of care. We need new fundamental values and norms in society that normalize paternity leave. We need companies not only to provide paternity leave, they already do, but they need to urge these new fathers to take it. And why does this paternity leave credit need to be shared with their wives? Why is there not a fixed number of weeks of leave for men? Because currently, the men and the, the husband and the wife have to decide how they're going to proportion their leave. And in many cases, they give it to their wives. So this is a bugbear that I hope uh, this white paper would address. So this today's topic isn't a women's issue. It is an everyone's issue. And if we want to tackle the challenges of a VUCA world head on, then gender equality is an existential issue for all of us in Singapore. It's existential. So please let this not be just a 15-minute speech by a woman in STEM. Let this be a conversation that I can continue with all of you, men and women alike. So I want change, and I want good change for the sake of Singapore and for women in STEM everywhere. I can be reached easily at my LinkedIn account and at my company pages. Share with me your thoughts and ideas, 
and also how I can help. Thank you very much. Thanks, Sushan. Thank you, Juliana. And indeed, the conversation starts now. It doesn't end here. It's an existential uh, uh, issue indeed. Thank you for, for very insightful sharing, Juliana. It was so interesting to hear the STEM perspective, the fact that you know gender biases do start early in life, but there's the need for hiring and promotion, uh, 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 proactivity, role modeling, um, and um, the fact that COVID has affected um, women scientists' product Activity. That's such an interesting fact. I didn't know that. Um, so let's go on to, to, to the questions. And I'm happy to see a lot of questions um, have both male and female, uh, 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 you know, uh, agendas to, to address. So let's take the one with the most votes. Um, that's from Boris with 23 votes. Why not peg all childcare benefits and paternity or maternity leave to the family unit rather than have a rather than a working mother, i.e. let the family decide how responsibility should be, should be divided. Uh, fair point. Um, shall I open this up? Jessica, you want to kick us off? Well, what do you think? Sure. Um, so I think that's a great question. And I think um, in, in some way, um, if we think about uh, what many country provisions many countries have, this is exactly actually what they tend to do. And in fact, um, in many of the earlier experiments, for example, in Norway, they used a very, very generous um, parental leave, I think up to six to nine months or maybe even up to a year. And typically they used to just let the family decide. And the problem with letting the family decide is that then, you know, the stereotypes and the gender norms are always such that, you know, it's always much easier if one person has really taken time off most often the mother, essentially what happens even in these very gender egalitarian economies has been that mom takes all the leave. So it, I think really real progress in terms of getting fathers to take up the leave was really only made in many of these economies. Again, I'm using them as case studies because they implemented these policies sort of 20 years ago. Um, they, they could really only sort of encourage fathers to take this leave when essentially it was ring-fenced, mm -hmm. reserved for exclusive use for fathers, in a way that was sort of like, if you don't use it, you lose it. And so I think that was only when... So you're saying make it mandatory? Make it mandatory, make it such that, you know, if, if you don't use it, you know, and, and these were these of actually, you know, up to four weeks, I think initially when it was rolled out, now it's been extended even beyond that. So there's still a provision for mothers to take the leave because, you know, there are definitely biological reasons why mom needs to take the leave. There's some flexibility in terms of trading off parts of it, but there's a portion that's for the exclusive reserved use of fathers only. And it has to be taken within a certain number of months of the, the birth of the child. And I think those policies have been shown to work in the sense that then fathers do take the leave, but it may not necessarily do so. So I'll give you a very good example. Japan has actually a very liberal maternity and patern paternity leave policies that can, in principle, be used by mothers and fathers. But we all know Japanese men do not take any paternity leave at all, this despite the fact that they could take up to a year. Right? They're worried about FaceTime in the office. They're worried about FaceTime, exactly. So I think that really seems to suggest that if you just leave it to the family unit, they're just going to you know, sort of revert back to, 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 to regular norms. So let's play on that daddy guilt. Let's make sure that the, the, the young dads amongst us are forced to take their leave, learn to bond with their babies early on, uh, and, uh, and, and share an equal burden. Thank you for that, Jessica. Does anyone want to, to opine otherwise or we'll go to the next question? Uh, the next question is uh, from Ku Swilan. Uh, Jessica Pan's session, excellent contacts. Um, is there data on women who do not get interrupted by childbirth in their careers as well? So 
single women or married without kids? Would the gap be similar? Yeah, so that's a great question. I think essentially, um, one thing I should emphasize about the pictures is that it looks like men and women are exactly the same in the years before birth. That's not technically true. They're on the same trajectory, but there's still a small gap. It's just that the gap becomes really large once they have their first kid and it doesn't recover. If you use single men, uh, single women as well as women without kids, in terms of, uh, again, the levels before birth, uh, they tend to earn somewhat less than uh, men, uh, more similar to married women with kids. But again, for that group in particular, because they don't have children, they evolve sort of, you know, um, it just sort of, you know, uh, through, the, through that threshold. So again, the gap between women with kids and no kids will look quite similar in some sense to the gap between men and women with kids. So you can think of them as sort of like a control group. So they, they kind of evolve like men. Uh, over the, over the period because they don't have kids so um, yeah I see. so the, the group that's hit essentially are are these uh, uh, women with kids okay okay Carrie Juliana you want to opine or weigh in no okay let's go to the next question uh, which is from Carol soon uh, we talked about toxic masculinity what about toxic femininity? Um, we hear how women judge one another and the role they play, stroke not play at home or at work. Is there research on the effects of such attitudes? Maybe I can move this to, to, to Carrie or Juliana. Yep, um, I, I can comment on this. Uh, well, I don't have the research, but uh, we do see that happening and it's transgenerational. Uh, what I mean is that, first of all, the current generation of moms uh, have a lot of like mommy guilt, right? They, they, they've been uh, brought up and inculcated that this is what they're supposed to do as moms, as wives. Um, and I think even when there are attempts to break out of this mold, uh, we see that the, the pressure and the influence of mothers, this mother's mothers, that means our mothers and mothers-in-law uh, are ever-present. Um, so I think the one of the key um, barriers that I've noticed is that even as we talk about uh, and intellectualize about all this ungendering care, for example, in forums like this, uh, somehow the vernacular mainstream media, uh, Chinese papers, Tamil papers, Malay papers, for example, are not really picking up on these discussions as much. Um, and then what we're seeing is that these ideas are not getting seeded or socialized to the older, older generation. And we cannot ignore the fact that um, the, older the current generation of mo mothers and fathers live in Singapore quite in proximity with their parents. And sometimes we also depend on our own parents to help with care. But there's this expectation uh, that as a mother, you should be doing this. Right. So um, I think this you want to call it toxic feminism or uh, I think entrenched notions of what uh, the mother's and wife's role uh, could be is still very, very prevalent and it cuts across generation and it's going to still exert an influence on us if we don't address that right now. <laughs> fair point, fair point. And I guess, you know, women can play a more proactive role. Women leaders, um, you know, can help uh, other young aspiring uh, uh, women um, uh, to, to, to go through, be, be great mentors, role models, um, and also maybe have, have male bosses make that positive, uh, proactive step to, 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 to encourage uh, uh, more women to rise through the ranks. Um, right, so the next question comes from Carol Loy. Uh, late pickup penalties are to compensate childcare and student care teachers. 
many of whom are also women who need to care for themselves and their own families. How can their needs be met too? I guess, Carrie, this would be for you. Can I see the question again? Okay, so um, let's flash it up. There you go. Yeah, well, um, it's a tricky one because uh, you're right. I think the the penalties are not there specifically to compensate the, the childcare teachers, but I think to, in a way, uh, prevent an overspilling of their work time. So it is a tough challenge. Um, I think the key here is really not about the penalties, but I think about the, the workplace um, support, right? When the key thing is when the women that I speak about are uh, in lower wage jobs where they perceive their power in the organization, in the employer, uh, in the firms as very little. Um, they don't have the confidence to, to bargain or de to negotiate for understanding when actually understanding is the best currency. With more understanding from employers, they don't have to, to, to worry about having to get off on time or in time to pick up the kids because the employer would be okay. And then the financial penalty would just not be relevant, it would not set in. So I think the key thing is to understand that uh, in amongst the lower paid or uh, lower wage uh, workers, they do not have the same bargaining power as we do. And they're not uh, confident of voicing out their caregiving needs because um, in, in a very uh, pragmatic sense, they perceive themselves to be highly replaceable which is quite sad, right? I mean, it's true, but sad. Um, so I think we need to sensitize employers to the fact that uh, when they do not show understanding, um, then they could, there, there is implication on turnover because then the women leave. Yes. And I think, you know, technology, uh, whilst fantastic in many ways, can also create a lot more income disparity. Right, um, And not everyone can become an AI scientist or understand tech. Um, and there is an underbelly of jobs that are still fairly manual that will be, I guess, in a low-income trap. Um, and so how can we use technology more proactively to, to, to rebalance this income gap is, is a big issue upon us. Uh, by the way, I don't think low interest rates help either. Uh, to the point about CPF, Carrie, that you brought up, um, you know, I think uh, it's great that over 90% believe that CPF is important. It is sad that they don't have enough uh, for both MediSafe or retirement planning. Um, and I think that a lot can be done to raise that income gap. And be it using technology, Juliana, why can't we use social media, social selling to really help to scale up and help these women who at the moment have to work in, 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 in set time, you know, manual work that requires your, your, your labor time. Why can't we empower them to work from home, help them to sell more, whether they're making kwekwes or whatever it is, right? So that um, we don't get stuck in this in this uh, income income trap, as, as as we said. I think um, you know, perhaps thinking out loud, and maybe your skills to your point about skills <laughs> future and how many women have had the time to to take that up. And you know, why not have um, have an social selling session, right? How to sell more from home, uh, 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 you know, work skills kind of a session for, for these women. Um, okay, so let's go to the next one, which is from uh, Aditi. 
what are the barriers that prevent men from being more proactive at home? Is it simply because of gender norms or genuine lack of skills on caregiving and other pressures that they have to deal with? Um, who wants to take that? I think this will be applicable to all. Juliana, you want to weigh in here? Uh, this is a very tricky topic. And thanks, Sushan. It's a tricky topic. And I don't... Nothing I say will come out right. So, <laughs> um, I mean, I love my husband, but you know, there are such gender norms that are pervasive in, in any society, East or West. And uh, so I think it's a mixture of both. One is that they, there is a, a kind of a sense that uh, childcare, home care, domestic care, of course, in my family, I have an excellent uh, domestic helper. So even I myself have, uh, you know, outsource much of that work to her. Uh, but to answer your point, it is definitely a cultural norm. And B, they may not necessarily have the skills to manage all of that uh, based on the way they were brought up as well. So I think there's a lot of um, uh, multi-generational uh, kind of expectations as well as um, if you look at the way we were trained in school, maybe girls would do home economics we learn how to cook. I learned how to sew. I did lots of things that was home-based. And, you know, boys do something very different from, from us, right? They learn how to, like, I don't know, build stuff. So I, I do think that perhaps uh, it's a mixture of both. Yes. Jessica, um, you want to weigh in there? So I have a personal anecdote, which I think kind of, you know, fuels this sort of, you know, small differences early on can sort of lead to large differences later. And I think not to take away from Juliana's point that, you know, I think men and women could be quite different in terms of the exposure. But so when we had our first kid, my, my husband is, you know, typically quite proactive and he was very interested in trying to sort of take care of the child. But I think it's one of those things where, you know, at the beginning, you know, I was always that, you know, 10 seconds faster at, at, than he was at putting the kid down, right? So the kid would be screaming, we're both really tired, you know, he would be like, you know, I would be like, you know what, if we both need sleep, I'm just gonna like, you know, put her down and sh sh she's gonna be quiet. And I was just, you know, five seconds faster than he was. The problem is that each time I did it, and I said, you know, I'll do it. It became 10 seconds faster, 20 seconds faster. The next time it was two minutes faster. And at some point he was just like, oh, why don't you just do it? You know, you're faster anyway, right? So I think this is where, again, back to our whole discussion about paternity leave is that some of these really small differences could actually sort of escalate to much bigger differences, maybe because of lack of practice or lack of opportunity. And so I think sometimes it's also important for us not to kind of internalize the fact that maybe they are worse, but to give them a chance and let them do things their way. So I've also heard of like, you know, sort of, you know, people saying that, you know, sometimes women also exert their own standards on how like men should take care of the house or how men should take care of the kids. And I think it's important for us to sometimes realize that men and women do things differently and maybe allow them to embrace how they would like to do things. Maybe we, we will be like appalled, but sometimes I'm just like, you know, I'm just going to go to a different room. You do what you need to do. I've got to do my work call. You take care of it. Just get it done, you know? And so I think it's, it's sometimes, you know, these differences may be in our minds as well. And that could be sometimes the stereotypes that we have. And it's important to give them also opportunity and uh, and, and, and time to, 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 to learn. So whilst, that's the, whilst we're inside the efficiency frontier at work, women have to accept being inside the efficiency frontier at home. Could be. Uh, not set the bar too high. And accept that men are just going to have to learn to, to adapt, right? Carrie, you put your hand up. Are you going to opine? Yeah, um, I'd just like to also share some sentiments uh, in my recent focus groups with uh, mothers and, and also some dads. Uh, and uh, it's related to this point about whether mothers are willing to let go, to let dads in to do things. 
Um, and I think certain this kind of progressive policies, uh, paternity leave, etc., would be more effective, I think, if we can enable parenting skills for both moms and dads. Um, and also in the same way that we don't have enough women role models in senior positions in STEM, we don't have enough role models of excellent, nurturing, baby-holding, baby-rearing dads. Um, and I think it's important that we start normalizing this and mainstreaming them, uh, like what Juliana said earlier, in the media. Because this is what shapes what we think is possible. Role modeling. Julian, are you going to add a point as well? Yes. Uh, actually, I wanted to add a point to uh, what Jessica talked about, you know, in, in, at home. Um, I think my husband in my, in my family made a very conscious decision that he wanted to be a very hands-on parent. And actually, I'm taking his lead um, in the sense that, you know, he, he, he's involved in all aspects of the, of the children and even puts them to bed. But on Jessica's point... They, I, I've learned that dads and moms bring up their children and consider boundaries very differently. And therefore, it's a kind of a complete mind, mindset shift if we want to involve our husbands and fathers in, in upbringing. Because we may have our predisposed, predispositions or ideas, preconceived notions about what should be the day-to-day -day care, how they are fed, how they are bathed, how they are put to sleep. But I find that my husband is a completely different style and it actually works very well and the kids love it. So perhaps my, my sense is if we want to bring our, our husbands into, into the domestic matters, we need to also accept that they have their own style of doing it. And once that is uh, you know, achieved, uh, you actually have a partner in, in crime for everything you do. Or the kids learn to arbitra arbitrage between mom and dad. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that also happens. Yeah. It's, quite, it's quite funny sometimes. Yes. Okay, so our next question is uh, from Sochin. Hi, Soch. Should we abolish? Uh, should we abolish the policy of employers asking potential hires for last drawn salary? Good point. Seeing as women generally get paid less to begin with, this perpetuates the gender pay gap. Um, I guess you know this is uh, it is the labor norm. I guess right. Everyone has to fill in last paid salary when you apply for a new job. Uh, so I, I, I like to open this up, but I guess, Jessica, do you have the stats on this? And what do you think? Should we just abolish this? Yeah, so this is actually a really good question. In fact, actually, uh, quite a few states in the US have started moving toward trying to, and companies as well, trying to move towards not asking for such information in hiring. I think actually the effects of this such a policy is, is a little unclear. So I think on the one hand, it seems like because women tend to make lower pay, um, that it, it, it might help women. On the other hand, if you are sort of a very sort of well-established woman who is, is trying to sort of, you know, break, break, break barriers and as a result has actually sort of, you know, done very well in one's own career, the inability to actually mention your last round pay also puts you at a weaker bargaining position because they're going to assume, you know, sort of statistically that you may not be doing as well. So I think it could really cut both ways. Uh, I don't have sort of the, um, you know, studies that have kind of uh, essentially evaluated uh, these policies, although I think pay transparency policies have been shown. So pay transparency, uh, in other words, sort of making known kind of what the pay structure is like within your organization or, um, you know, um, of your co-workers have been shown to actually decrease the pay gap, although it actually means lower pay for both men and women, because it actually removes in part the bargaining power of, uh, of some workers. So I think there are sort of two elements to this policy. There's pay transparency so that women are aware, for example, about what their male colleagues are, are, are potentially earning. And then there's also this sort of, you know, not, not mentioning your, your, your last round pay. 
Um, but I think, again, the effects are a bit nuanced and I think um, it, it could affect different groups of workers quite differently. So it's a, it's a policy we have to take, you know, um, be, be quite careful with. Yeah. Juliana. If I may add, because I, I guess, represent a very male-dominated industry, and I think it has to go much further beyond just saying you're not allowed to ask for large-drawn salary. Because I spent many years in the U.S., and they've moved light years ahead in this, in this area. You can't even ask a woman if she's married or, or, or going to have children. So here we, we, we find it actually normal for an interviewer to ask a woman if she's married, if she has children, if she's going to have children. So maybe I am not present in every interview room, but I definitely hear, you know, what I call locker room talk by men. And I've heard absolutely anecdotal, but enough anecdotes to feel, um, uh, you know, that this is a trend. They will say things like, um, she looks like she's, she likes to get pregnant. So we should avoid hiring her or she just got married. She's going to have a lot of babies. So that those are considerations in hiring or even uh, firing people. I've seen that um, when a particular person said, if, if I knew, if I had known you would have as many babies as, if I had known you'd be so prolific at having children I, con compared, to having, uh, compared to having publications, I would not have hired you. So I wish you had more publications than babies. I feel that, uh, it is still allowed in this part of the world, but in, in the US or other parts, it would have been immediate termination of that particular uh, supervisor. So I think we have to go a lot further, Sushan, than just saying we are banning the, the question of pay or last drawn pay. It is a pervasive problem and it's really hurting uh, specifically mothers or soon-to-be mothers. And I think the other, I would like to share uh, 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 an interesting uh, uh, fact that, you know, it, it's also let the data speak for itself. So once we're whilst we're protecting the data uh, for job applicants in a way, I think we should be transparent about the data within each organization and every manager. I mean, at DBS, for example, every country, every segment, every manager knows their male-female gaps. Everyone knows at every level, how many female leaders do you have? How much is the pay gap at each level? And be guided by that and you know name and shame the ones who have not looked at the at rebalancing that in inequality and make proactive steps to rebalance when you have too many of a certain gender right um, uh, and, and the lack of diversity uh, and we found that very useful and then just the data doesn't lie that be guided by your data if you're a manager do what you need to do um, so the next question is um, is from Kai Lin um, and um, it is uh, low-income working women face the catch-22 of not qualifying for childcare relief when unemployed and unable to work if they do not have childcare arrangements. How can they get out of this conundrum? Carrie, you probably come across this situation a lot. Uh, you're right, uh, very, very much. Um, I think that was, uh, I mean, it still is a, a prevailing problem, um, but I think in, I can't remember which year it was, but in the last two to three years, uh, the government actually has made uh, some adjustments to childcare subsidies um, to, to cater for women who are in the process of getting employment. So I think that's a really good move from a space of where, oh, if you were just unemployed, you would not qualify for childcare relief. But right now, um, if you're looking for a job, they, uh, government does provide that. 
Well, that being said, um, sometimes the back to work journey can be more than a few months because you've got to build a confidence, you've got to, uh, so many dimensions to work on before a woman feels confident um, uh, and also several rounds of interview experiences, etc. So what we found actually helpful was uh, at Dollars of Tomorrow was uh, a community-based um, child-minding network where it's a peer-to-peer -peer mutual aid system where mothers who opted to not work for reasons of their own can help to look after the children of the mothers who would like to go out to work. Um, and in this beautiful mutual aid support system, uh, there is a uh, the, 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 the transactions or the payments are butter, right? Whether they, the mothers agree amongst themselves what are the resources they want to afford and what are the fees they can afford. Um, but I think that being said, there is uh, room to expand on the variety of childcare options available beyond the formal childcare that you find centres. And it's actually one of my um, key advocacy points that I would like to see the government play a bigger role uh, in enabling and then extending subsidy to home-based childminding, where um, lower-income uh, women who tend to uh, access jobs that require very different hours instead of regular hours can have access to home-based childminding by a peer and be able to have that peer who's a childminder be remunerated for her care work as well. So this is something that uh, we're working on in piloting uh, through Daughters of Tomorrow. We would like to uh, see more take up and to explore certain policies or subsidy schemes that can be extended to this uh, informal network. Great, so work care into uh, work fair into care, care fair, right? <laughs> Very good. Um, okay, now moving on to schools. The next question from Nandini Balakrishnan talks about how can schools or MOE help parents and students to overcome the gender stereotypes? Uh, it's a good point, right? Start them young. Uh, Julian, you talked about that. So how can schools and MOE help to overcome this gender stereotypes and that certain subjects are suitable for certain genders? Um, so proactively encourage STEM and girls, for example. Um, what do you think can be done or what more can be done? Oh, okay. Uh, Sushan, I want to share a little bit about um, what I've heard. So remember that, you know, our curriculum is the same for all boys and girls, whether they are co-ed schools, boys and girls school, we go through the same MOE curriculum. But there is this, what we call the after school, like CCAs, uh, enrichment programs. And they are often provided by uh, sort of, uh, you know, like the science center and some of the higher education institutions like the universities, they offer to come in and provide training and support. So from talking to some of my colleagues, I, I really don't want to mention who, um, they try to provide education specifically for female schools, girls only schools on very technical topics like AI coding and so on. And sometimes these teachers, you know, male and female teachers alike, will tell them, I'm sorry, please don't come to our school. Our girls won't get it or won't like it. So the decision was already made before the kids had a chance to even be exposed to it. So for example, if I know of an excellent quantum physicist who is female, which is a very rare occurrence, and I wanted to bring her you know, a teacher might say, oh, I'm sorry, my girls don't want to be physicists or they find it boring. So I think there is a little bit of the teachers and, and I'm not blaming teachers, the teachers are all great. I'm just saying there could be a, a triage situation at the level of what kinds of enrichments activities are good for my girls. 
because I have a daughter and she's in a girl's school. I'm an IG girl. And, you know, she's doing tap dancing. She's doing choir. She's doing violin. Uh, not, not, not all her, but her, she and her, her cohort. But I would also wish that her cohort was doing things like coding AI or building drones or, you know, doing all kinds of robotics that I would consider maybe more prevalent in a boys-only school. So, Sushan, there can be a lot that can be done outside of the curriculum, which is, is fantastic as it is. So, um, to, to engage at, at, at the schools and the leadership level, Carrie, you wanted to say something? Uh, I, I just want to riff off uh, Juliana's point, right, where I think, and this alludes to the same kind of uh, unconscious biases, stigma, stereotypes that plays in our minds, whether it's about gender or whether it's about race. Um, I think we need to look into uh, unconscious bias training for educators, for, for employers, for HR people, for bosses, for leadership. Um, because I think we need to be aware that we are ourselves acting out of these biases without even realizing it. And I think awareness is key. Um, and when we can all be made aware at a national level of all these unconscious biases, we can have hope of catching ourselves before we make a decision like that, which is like what Juliana said, is systematically, you just deprive uh, the girls or children of opportunities because of our own adults' baggages and perceptions, yeah. right? Yeah. Great. So time check, 10.58, time for one last question, I think, and that's from Shami. Um, the women's rights movement has been fighting a good battle for far longer than race rights, but we're still not at the place we want women to be true. What hope do minorities especially have, uh, especially minority women? Um, so, Carrie, if you could kick us off there. Well, that's a fantastic, fantastic question. Um, and I hope, uh, Shamil, thank you for your question. I hope you don't feel too uh, hopeless about it. Um, I think just by bringing up this dimension in our consciousness in today's presentation, uh, we're beginning a journey and, and as with all journeys go, they're going to take different times, right? And I think we need to be careful about how we approach these topics. Um, the women's movement has suffered different cycles and different bouts of backlash. And I think we can learn from history that we don't want the same uh, to happen in the journey for um, racial equality and uh, awareness of our um, racial inequalities, if any, that are unconscious and unintentional. Yeah, so I do think we can learn from the women's movement uh, and how we can do better uh, in terms of our awareness and how we want to effect change in society. Okay. I want to add on Carrie's point. Yes, Juliana. Very quickly. Uh, thank you, for Shamil, for bringing that up. I want to say very quickly that minority women have to do one thing. They have to show up. You have to keep showing up. Why do I say so? Because... Sometimes, you know, they are asked to speak on panels and then they might say, oh, it's a token. I'm a token minority or a, a token female. Show up because you are given the opportunity to represent this group. And token or not, once you go there, dazzle and razzle and dazzle and show them your competence, experience and expertise. So if, if you don't even show up, then we don't even get the representation that we need, whether or not it is deemed tokenism or not. So I've talked to a lot of minorities and also women on that. Sometimes they don't want to be that only woman on the panel. And I tell them to just show up because that's the least you can do. And, and, and be great when you do show up. Thank you. Thanks, Juliana. 
So show up, step up, and 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 dazzle the world. So I guess on that note, it will be a good time to 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 thank all my all the wonderful panelists we had today. Uh, Jessica, Carrie, Juliana, it's been wonderful. Uh, my honor to 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 moderate this really power-packed panel. I learned so much from all of you. Uh, thank you to IPS for 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 organizing this great session. Um, and um, let's uh, close this up and hand it back to the moderator. Thank you. Thank you.